Mark 6 is where we're going to be. If you were here last week, we ended in verse 30, and that's where we're going to pick it up tonight. Um, but as we do, and as you turn there to give you a moment to, to find Mark 6, verse 30, uh, life is often full of surprises. Um, it seems like when I wake up in the morning, I get surprised by the number of emails on my phone. I don't know about you, like, what happened? And I had one of those uh, this morning. I had an unknown uh, voicemail and an unknown missed call from 1 in the morning. I didn't get it till 6 a.m. And uh, it was my brother. I've, I've talked a lot about him. He had a heart attack. He lives in Estonia in January. And he called saying he's in the hospital again this morning having the same chest and back pain as when he had had uh, the heart attack in January. So life is full of surprises. So here he is. He leads a church that meets Sunday evenings in Estonia. It happened right before he was going to teach. Instead, he made it to the hospital. He's there, and he's stable, and the uh, surgeons are coming in tomorrow to do further tests. And, like, what's next? I don't know. He had a few stints. Um, will they have to re-stint? Will they have to do something else? I don't know. But I do know this. Life is indeed full of surprises. Things do not go the way we plan all the time. Would you agree? And, and that really lays into what we see. Last week's story about John the Baptist and King Herod and that battle that was going on, evil King Herod killing John the Baptist, this ruler over Galilee, over Israel, against God and his people, is going to play against, in comparison, the story we're about to read. So let's just pick it up and we'll look at some of the comparisons. Verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. That's where we ended last week. Jesus sends his followers out, and they do exactly what Jesus was doing. They teach. They're used by God to heal. They're in the same vein of Jesus. Jesus is now delegating people with responsibility. Well, what happens? Verse 31, then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. The implication here is they're not just sent on one mission. This isn't a one-off. As Jesus is leading them, he's giving them more and more responsibility. Jesus is teaching, and they're teaching, and Jesus is being used by God, and they're being used by God. And if you've ever tried to follow Jesus and begin to volunteer, you know that things can get overwhelming. And you take on more responsibility, more responsibility. Some of you, you can relate. You helped to plant this church about a year and a half ago. And you're here early and you stay late and you carry the burden. And that's what happens to the 12. So Jesus does what Jesus always does. He cares for his people. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Verse 32. So they went away by themselves in a boat. So they need to leave the shore because that's where the people are. They go out in the boat, and then the paparazzi show up. Verse 33. But many who saw them were leaving, uh, saw them leaving, recognized them, and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So the, Jesus, the people figure out where Jesus is going, and they get there in advance. Verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Uh, by this time, it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages 
and buy themselves something to eat. All this makes sense. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, well, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Well, how many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. And when they found out, they said, huge number here, five, okay, and two fish. Verse 39, then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties, taking the loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. Jesus gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. Uh, he also divided the two fish among them, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and of fish, and the number of men who had eaten them was 5,000. Life is just full of all sorts of surprises. Let's just, we'll work our way through the text. The challenge here, I have to admit, is it's so familiar. Some of us who grew up going to church regularly, this is like story number one, you know? Jesus, green grass, picnic lunch, you know, all that. We know it so well that we may miss what the early readers are supposed to get. And this story is in comparison with the story before it. So we're going to see a contrast of two different kinds of leaders, two different kinds of kingdoms, two different kinds of kings. And Jesus, this is a biography about him, what Mark is doing is pitting him against King Herod and showing that Jesus is the better way. Now let me give you the bottom line and, and then we'll work our way back. I'm here to remind everyone listening here via podcast that Jesus is always the better way. Jesus is always the better leader. Jesus is always the better option. You're going to get no greater care than with Jesus. We live in a society full of all sorts of religious, spiritual options, and I'm an advocate. I'm not a salesman, but I'm an advocate, yes, for crying babies and Jesus. And I love babies, so cry away. Uh, but, but Jesus is the better way, and we see it in comparison to Herod. Now, what does Jesus do? Let's just work our way back through the text. Uh, they're, verse 30, they go out. Verse 31, they come back. They're hurried. Jesus says, come with me by yourselves. And so Jesus loves his people. He loves his leaders. He knows that they need a break. And so he pulls them aside. Verse 32, they go away in a boat to a solitary place. You could also translate this word the desert region or to the wilderness, or to the wild. Uh, what Mark is doing is very subtle. It's going to come out later in more obvious words, but he's painting a picture of what God was to his people, Israel. Remember the story of the Exodus? God loves his people. He calls Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes, and he, he leads them out, but they find themselves in slavery. And at the right time when they cry out, he says, I'm going to pull you out of slavery. Moses, go set my people free. And Yahweh, through Moses, pulls the people out of Egypt into the desert region, into the wilderness, to be their leader. And so what Jesus is doing is very much in step with what God has always been doing. King Herod, he's got a birthday party that he invites a few people, the elite, the rich, his political party, and they get drunk and they overindulge in eating. They bring in the young girls to dance in ways that are nasty, and he ends up killing an innocent man, John the Baptist, for speaking good truth, head on a platter. That's the kingdom of this age. That's where it ends up. 
But in comparison, Jesus is being shown by Mark very much like Yahweh, like the creator God, who gets his loved ones and he pulls them aside to a quiet place. And he brings them out in verse 33. Many who saw them leaving recognized them. They ran on foot from all the towns and they got there ahead of them. Where are they? Uh, they're in the land called Galilee up in the north of Israel. Interesting thing about Galilee is the setting of the whole story is in a place where political revolutions happen often. Now again, it's, it's new to us. The early readers would have known this. There's an entire movement called the Zealots, people who believe in Yahweh, they believe in the Torah, they believe in the scriptures, so much they want to kick out the Romans by force. And the Zealot, the zeal movement, that God's land should be led by God's people, it was started up in Galilee by Judas the Galilean in 86. And so one scholar puts it this way. Let's throw it up on the screen. He says, Galilee was the spearhead of freedom movements against Rome and particularly the zealot movement. So where Jesus goes into this hill country with his 12 to love them, care for them, all the people show up in a region that was known for gatherings that would end up in rebellions. And that's important to note. Why? Because Jesus is going to start a revolution. Jesus is a revolutionary, but it's an altogether kind, a altogether different kind of movement. So again, looking at the story from last week and this week, Herod was the leader of the Roman revolution, the Roman movement. He was the Roman military and political leader. And Jesus is starting a revolution, but it's not going to be like Herod, and it's not going to be like the kingdom of Rome. So we're seeing a contrast between Herod and Jesus. And how does that happen? Verse 34, we get the response from Jesus. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, again, Herod brings in a few people for his party. But what does Jesus do? He sees a large group of people. He had, what's your Bible say? Compassion. He had compassion on them. What's compassion? Compassion is a word that means pity. It's a word that means uh, sympathy. It, it's a word that means a deep feeling of longing towards Jesus when he sees his disciples uh, working themselves too hard. He wants to pull them aside. He has compassion on them. When he sees the people who have run and walked for miles, Jesus is in a boat with his followers. They are looking from the shore to see where he might land. They're anticipating a movement. They're longing for someone to come and bring relief. When he sees them, he doesn't see them like Herod sees people as political pawns. He doesn't see them as people that he could lord over and oppress. Jesus has pity. He's got compassion. He has mercy. He has a deep sense of longing for their good. And the good news is that's how Jesus feels about all of us. When he sees you right now, when he sees what you're going through, when he sees your desperate situation, he doesn't look in judgment against us, even though he knows us. He doesn't say, look, I would help you, but you have done X, Y, and Z. No, Jesus shows the way of the creator God, the Father, who always loves his people with compassion, with pity, with mercy. He knows who we are, and he still loves us, and that is good news. So he has compassion on these people, and he sees them like what? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, re remember, Jesus is starting a revolution. 
when, when they're in Galilee, people were looking to gather. If, if you were in Galilee and you were a Jewish leader, you would get your people together, go, because this is hill country, it's secluded. The biggest town is 1,000 to 3,000 people. So you can kind of hide out and you get your people, you, you give your teachings, you talk about your movement, you stir up all this Jewish nationalism, and then at the right time, you, you bring in a revolt. So when Jesus is there in Galilee, there is no surprise that there are many people who have come because they're expecting Jesus to call them to arms. They're expecting Jesus to, to, to rise up and say, it's now time. God is speaking with his people. Let's go and claim the land that was given by God our Father. But Jesus is going to share some revolutionary ideas, but they're very unlike what people were expecting. He sees them like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I immediately think, oh, little lambies, oh, cuties, you know, little sheep need help. And yeah, there is like a, a pastoral picture. My wife and I have been to the UK a bunch and have seen the sheep out there grazing and the shepherds moving them from pasture to pasture. Yeah, that, that's part of it. But sheep without a shepherd is also, throughout the Old Testament, a metaphor for a king a warrior-like, a military-like leader sent by God to guide the people. If you don't believe me, I'll throw it up on the screen. Uh, Numbers 27, verses 15 through 18. Uh, at the end of Moses' 40 years of shepherding, guiding Israel. What did it mean for Moses to shepherd and guide Israel? When enemy countries came, Moses sent Joshua with the army. To be a shepherd wasn't just to be nice and cozy and warm. It was to be a king, a military ruler. And at the end of his life, this is what Moses prayed. He says to the Lord, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so that the Lord's people will not be what? Like sheep without a shepherd. Interesting. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, who's the lead general, by the way, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hands on him. So, so there's an expectation, and you see it all throughout, not every occasion, but all throughout the Old Testament. Sheep without a shepherd is about a strong military leader. So Jesus sees them like sheep without a shepherd. They're going in all sorts of directions. And what is Jesus' response? Counterintuitive to most people who are going to have a revolution, who are going to rile them up and, and send them out to battle. What does Jesus do? Verse 34. He sees them. He has compassion like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus began teaching them many things, teaching them for a long while. Jesus sits and there's 5,000 men. Are there women and children? It doesn't say. Implications are. It's probably true. Jesus uh, should be scaring Herod from a distance. Because in a, in a region where the largest village is 3,000, Jesus has 5,000 guys, implication, ready for battle. And what does Jesus do? He sits and he teaches them. He knows that people need to be led. People need truth. People need guidance. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is he's full of pity, full of mercy. He gives us what we desperately need. And the fact remains today, when I think about this passage and I think about our calling as a local church, what I want to do tonight is not just look through the text, but I want to pull out a few implications that will speak 
to us as a community. We want to make it really plain for us as Sunset, uh, a Jesus church. What are some of the markers that we see in Jesus that we want to see grow in our own following of Jesus, in our own world? The first thing I want us to look at is Jesus is moved with compassion. We want to be a community that is moved with compassion. Jesus, seeing their plight, seeing they're scattered, seeing they have all sorts of views about what God is up to in the world. Some think that God is going to send a leader to kick out the Romans. Some are unsure if God has forgotten them. What Jesus does is he steps in and he brings the Torah. He brings the scriptures and he teaches them. He takes people where they're at. He connects with them on their level and he brings them into the rightness of God. And we want to be a people that live like that. That we're moved not with personal gratification in mind, not with a personal agenda in mind, but we're moved with compassion towards people. And there are plenty of people, I think you would agree, in the Pacific Northwest, and particularly here on the Sunset Corridor, who really don't have a correct view of who God is. There are people who don't understand Jesus for who he is. There are people who've been burnt out by church. There have been people who've been burnt out by organized religion. There are people who are hungry for spirituality and God, but haven't found the truth in Jesus. And what do we want to do? We want to be a community that screams and yells and says, you're going to hell. Well, no, that may be true. But that's not very helpful. Would you agree? We want to be a people, rather, who are like Jesus, Herod off in his room, party with his friends, Jesus out in the crowd, mixing it up with people, getting his hands dirty, teaching, loving, caring. That's what a shepherd does. So we want to be a community that is challenged on our compassion level. If you had a compassion meter, whatever that is, where is it right now? Is it high? Do you, do you really feel for where people are at? Do you feel for where the people in this community are at? Do you feel for where people who are far from God are at? Jesus is moved with compassion, and so he teaches them. Now, what does that mean for our faith today? It means that if we're really going to follow Jesus and live this compassionate lifestyle, we can't tune people out. Uh, and they said, well, I don't tune people out. None of us intentionally do it. But have you found that more and more with more technology, with more stuff, with more activity, it's the fall. Your calendar is already too busy. You heard about the house of learning classes. You said, I'd love to, but my Saturdays are full, my Mondays are full, my Tuesdays are full. We live full lives, right? So much so that look at the contrast. When the disciples come to Jesus, they're like, Jesus, you've been talking a long time. Snack, snack, please. You're like, you know. People are hungry. Jesus, we love you, but we've heard this message again and again. Can you send them away? I mean, there's got to be a burger mill down the road. Please, Lord, they need food, and we need a break. And isn't that the contrast you see in the disciples and Jesus? Their response is, Jesus, send them away. Give them something to get, let them get something to eat. Let them go out. And Jesus is like, you feed them. You give them something. You participate. Get your hands dirty. We want to be a people that are moved with compassion. And to be a compassionate people, we're going to have to take the time, aren't we? We're going to have to prioritize people over stuff. People and their need and where they're at and what God's doing in their world over the very important things that are important to us. That's what it means to follow Jesus. We can't shortchange that. But the good news is, is Jesus is modeling for his disciples by doing the compassionate thing. He gives them something to eat. 
The second thing that we see in the text when we think about what it means for us as a community and hopefully for you as a follower of Jesus is in verse 35. It says, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples come to him. It's a remote place. It's late. Send them away. They can go to the surrounding countryside and villages, buy themselves something to eat. And he answers, you, you give them something to eat. Now they must think Jesus is joking because look at their response. Sarcasm. Jesus, that's going to take half a year's wages. Uh, Jesus, we kind of left our jobs to follow you. There's not a lot of spare change. And better yet, I love their honesty. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them? <laughs> Don't you see that? Like, I would really help them out, but I've got to buy this. Like, you know, th their heart is exposed. And so Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Verse 38, well, okay, then let's, let's get basic. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. In the middle of verse 38, when they found out, they said, five and two fish. What Jesus is doing is setting them up like he's setting us up for a life of dependency. What does it mean to be like a Jesus church? We need to grow. We need to be moved with the compa compassion for people. I can't create that. I, I can't poof that over you. Jesus is going to have to wreck us a little bit about what's going on, not only in our own world, or the lives of the people around us, but the lives of those who are far from Jesus. Jesus is going to have to produce that. And he uses the circumstance. Here's my point. He uses this circumstance as an object lesson to do something deeper in their soul. The second thing I think he wants to do and produce in me and us as a community is a dependence on Jesus. Notice he says, you give them something to eat. It's an impossible situation. There's no way he's going to feed them. But in this revolution that Jesus is leading, in this movement that Jesus is about, the movement never happens, listen, without Jesus. We never get to a point where we can make it. We never get to a point as a, where as a community, we don't desperately need Jesus to lead, guide, provide, and do everything in between. The point of following Jesus, I'm a deep theologian tonight, this is going to really come out, is following Jesus. The point is always Jesus is at the front of center. Jesus is always giving the commands. Jesus is always stretching our faith. Jesus is always pushing the envelope. Jesus is a revolutionary leader. He's just unlike the other political leaders of his day who are self-gratifying and self-obsessed. Jesus is about the good of people who are far from God, lost, hungry, hurting. And Jesus wants to create that kind of vibe in us. He wants to create us into a people who are filled with compassion and who are totally dependent on Jesus. So he says, what do you got? Five and two fish. And the, the bread in the story is more than just staple food. We know, anybody who's studied the Bible for a while knows a little bit about the Middle East, that bread is the basics. It's the, uh, it, for us, it's about carbs and gluten. And most of us are, are, are totally repulsed by the idea of bread anymore because of what it does to us, you know. But bread is like the everybody's food. Small cracker about, about this big. And it's, it's what everyone, it's like in Asia, it would be rice. And in, in for us Hispanics, for Puerto Ricans, it would be rice and beans. We don't eat without rice and beans. It's just our staple food. And so Jesus is about the basics, but it's more than just about bread. Bread is a symbol of a larger thing. What do I mean? Bread is a sign. Uh, all throughout the Old Testament, God's provision is symbolized through the bread. Think of Israel. They're in Egypt, and they go out, and they're grumbling. 
God brought him through a, a sea that blocked them, and the enemy's coming to kill them. The sea opens up. They go out on dry land through the sea, which I'm going to say is pretty stellar. I haven't done that yet. It's pretty amazing. And God brings them through. Oh, better yet, their enemy is killed behind them. God brings the water back in. Their enemy's destroyed. And what do they complain about a few days later? We're hungry. God, will you provide for us? It's not just about bread. It's about the source of life. And so God provides for them in the, in the desert. He provides a manna, a bread, a mysterious bread from heaven. And so Jesus, in talking about bread here, is bringing up a bigger issue. John pulls it out in his gospel, where in John, in chapter 6, when he talks about the same account, he ties it with Jesus being the bread of life. Jesus is the center of life. He's the source of life. And so it's not just about physical meal. It's about who we're trusting. And so for Jesus to come and miraculously provide bread for the people is a symbol and a sign of what's been happening since the beginning. Yahweh, the creator God, provides for his people, shepherds his people. He's like a shepherd for the sheep, and he guides them through the wilderness. And in the same way, Yahweh alone, the creator God, provides food for his people. And now Jesus is enacting exactly what the creator enacts. And why is this important? Mark is giving us the biography of Jesus. He wants you to know without any mistake, Jesus is more than just an ordinary teacher. He's more than just a Jewish rabbi. He's more than a miracle worker. He's more than a nice guy. He's the source of life. He's the very creator. And so when we see Jesus, we see the work of Yahweh, the creator God. Yahweh has come in his son Jesus. This is why the writers throughout the New Testament, they pick up on this theme. Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, I'll throw it up on the screen. It says, in the past God spoke to our forefathers, our ancestors, through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by who? His son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. It's exactly like God. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So the picture here that we see in this, this miracle, this sign is, yes, Jesus is compassionate. He cares for the people. But Jesus is the source of everything. So what does that mean for us as his followers? It means that we need to get to a place, and I, I pray that God doesn't have to use like really negative circumstances, but I think God wants to grow us as a community and as a people, and you as a follower, in utter dependence and desperation for Jesus. Not just for a few things or an occasional when I can't get myself out of a pickle, but at the heart and center of what it means to follow Jesus is a desperation, a very need. Jesus, you are the bread of life. Apart from you, I ain't got jack, which is poor English, sorry teachers. I don't have a thing. Where are we, let me just ask you, where are we as a community in our utter dependence on Jesus? The reason I'm sharing this now, we're going to have a, a six-week vision series uh, coming up. Uh, starting a few weeks from now, we will want to recast the vision for where we believe God's taking us as a church. This is kind of a, we're in the text, kind of a prelude to that. But I think that you're going to hear as a repetitive theme that God wants to push us in the area of dependence. 
where apart from Jesus, the whole thing's going to fall apart. And so, so we don't want to become a community that becomes complacent. Oh, here's, here's our budget, and here's what we can work out. And so, okay, God, there's our vision. Let's just say $500. I'm going way, way low. $500 what you provided. So we have a $500 vision. I think God wants us to move to a place where we see the needs in our community are massive and impossible. But Jesus wants us to step up and say, I trust you. Jesus, I trust you. And as a community of disciples, a community of followers, we've seen your hand of provision. We've seen you do miracles. We've seen your salvation. And now we want to trust you not for our good, but for the good of others. Not for our selfish needs, not for a bigger space for us, but Jesus, if you will open up more opportunity for people, we want to be used by you. I want to be that kind of person. I want to be stretched. Now I'm telling you because I'm a little bit on the forefront of what's happening. We've started to look for a building. I won't get into much of it tonight. And we're looking at pursuing all the options in the area. Good news is there are glorious opportunities within a mile, mile and a half of this place. Let me just tell you, my friend, all of them are way above us. When I say way, let me say way, way. They're way, way above us. They're way above what we have. They're way above our size. Of, they're way, when I look, I'm like, oh, my goodness. But then I have to remember that Jesus is the bread of life, and he's never called me to be in a position where I can do his work for him. He's always putting us in a place. And don't you find that in your own world? Just when you think you have enough to make it, you find out that your extra zeros go by the wayside, and you have less and less bread and fish. And you're like, what am I going to do? And Jesus is saying to you, and he's saying to me again, trust me. Trust me. What would it look like for us in this next few months and, and these next few years is where our new community to step out in big steps of faith, not stupidity, but faith, trusting that Jesus is the provider, and he loves people, doesn't he? He loves Hillsboro. He loves the Sunset Corridor, and it breaks his heart that tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, in this corridor are not following him right now. It breaks his heart, but he's got us. He's got you. He's got me. And so he's like, okay, I got a rad tag bunch. He sees you for who you are. Like he, he sees you. You're wobbly. I'm wobbly. He sees our inconsistencies. He sees our sin tendencies. He sees it all. He's like, okay, I trust you. And that's, that's the call for tonight. It's to remember that Jesus is a revolutionary leader who's not going to go power from the top. Of course he's the provider, but he's saying, now I'm trusting you. Give me five, five pieces of bread. Give me two fish and watch what I will do with it. Never underestimate, my friend, let's get practical. You're a barista or you're working a shift job and you're putting away a little bit of tip money and you're, you're putting it aside because you want to trust Jesus for bigger things. Never underestimate your generosity off tithing over $10 in tips. Never underestimate you giving that little that you have, not to me, not to the institutional church, but to Jesus. Never underestimate when you say, Jesus, I'm trusting that you can do something great in my city. Uh, and, and that's not just about money. It, it's, it's about our lives. Jesus, remember, sends the disciples. He sends them out into the fields. Look at the text again. Verse 38. He found them, they found Jesus and said, five and two fish. Verse 39. Jesus directed them all to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. 
So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and taking the loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gives thanks, and he broke the loaves. Then he gave it to his disciples to distribute to the people. He gave it to his disciples to distribute to the people. The third thing I want us to see tonight is not only do we need to grow in the area of mercy and compassion, not only do we need to grow in the area of dependence on Jesus for all things, we need to grow in the area of generosity. We see that they bring the five and the two to Jesus. Okay, we know that part of the story. But Jesus says it's not just about bringing your supply as if he needed five and two. He could rain down bread from heaven. He likes to use the resources that we give back to him. But notice it's more about relationship. He directs them, sit down in groups, green grass. He puts them in groups of hundreds, groups of fifties. He takes the two, he gives it to, uh, look, he looks up to heaven, gives thanks, and he gives it to his friends to give to the people. The implication is the 12 are going to the groups of 50, to the groups of 100, to the groups of 50, to the groups of 100, to the groups of 50, to the groups of 100. It's going to require not just a liberality in their checkbook, so to speak, but a deeper liberality, a deeper cut, and that's to their time and their attention. Would you agree it's easier to give a little cash than to give a little time? It's easier to, to write a, a check on the case. You hear about a need, I'm going to fund it. Now, look, let me not downplay that. Part of God's plan for us is generosity. So those who've been given much, much will be what? Required. We're stewards. We're, we're not owners. We're managers. God gives so that we can give to his causes. But, but what I see here in the story is more about God creating a people who are going to stick in the trenches and live generous lives with their time and with their attention. So they go out and they distribute. He divides the two fish. He gives them to the, all. They all ate, verse 42. They're satisfied. The disciples pick up extras. There's nothing left to waste. These little baskets were probably these little woven baskets that they used for their own little bit of food or supplies, a backpack in our modern day. And there's enough for everyone. And listen to this. There's enough for them. Did you catch that? Twelve people, twelve basketfuls left over. You cannot outgive God. You can't do it. Now, this isn't a fundraising campaign. There's no like inside my pocket, you know, contract, new building, sign here. This is about freedom in Jesus. Jesus wants us to grow more deeply in our mercy and our compassion. He wants us to grow in our dependence on Him. And He wants us to grow in living in our generosity towards people. Now, the beautiful thing about the movement of us as a community is our movement from just gatherings on the weekends to a mix of gathering here in the big and then gathering in homes, coffee shops, business uh, environments, in smaller clusters. We call them missional communities. Why? What is the point of getting together in a smaller group of people outside of this? We've been saying from the beginning, let me just repeat, it's exactly in line with the text. It's that God has mission for us, God has people for us, God has places for us, and so he wants to send us to the groups of 50, to the groups of 100. So never underestimate what happens in your living room. We want to grow in the area of generosity. You know, um, I'm going to be honest, this whole missional community thing is completely inconvenient. It's absolutely inconvenient. It takes up one or two other nights of the week or three or four nights of the, the, mo the month. It, 
It takes time and energy and attention, and, and, and it's about other people, which I'm, I'm way happier if it's about me, right? Am I alone? Like, I don't want to be honest, but I want to. Yeah, get up. No, I, I, all of this is inconvenient, but following Jesus will always be inconvenient, and it will always be the better way at the same time. And so Jesus, in this narrative, contrasting Herod, who's about greed, himself, his fame, Jesus, who's about releasing a community of people who are going to go in his name and be about the miracle. Jesus does the miracle, but he distributes it through his people. And so I can't change anyone, and we can't change anyone in the Sunset Corridor. Our missional community can't convince anyone in Bethany that they need to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but Jesus can do it through us. So never underestimate two hours, three hours uh, of volunteering once or twice a month in the kids' area. You say, well, I don't have a lot of cash. Could you give two or three hours, maybe the first and third or second and fourth Sundays, to love on these kids? Could you give out goldfish crackers in Jesus' name? <laughs> could, you, could you fill the little Dixie water cups with water so that these little ones don't dehydrate and die? Can you... <laughs> can you they're not going to die. It takes a few days to die without water. <laughs> and we don't keep them here that long. <laughs> but, but what, can, can you do that? This is not... Can, can you find out the needs of the people in your community or in your workplace, people who are far from God, irreligious or whatever, and just love them and meet them where they're at? This does not have to be complicated rocket science. It's about simple obedience to Jesus' plan. And whatever Jesus' plan is, it's good. And whatever Jesus' plan, in, plan is requires faith in him. And whatever Jesus' plan is, is going to require generosity in us. So are we going to be that kind of people? Jesus has the most amazing plan for us as a community. You have no idea what he wants to do in the next six months to five years. Neither do I. But I know it's bigger and better than we could ever imagine, but it starts with us, doesn't it? God's got to do something in my heart to prepare me for the greater things he wants to do for the good of the community. And tonight, I just want to invite you to join me. I want to, I want to invite you to join me. I was so encouraged tonight. Uh, uh, we've been talking about getting together to pray before the gathering. There were 22 people. You know, like, I was, I, I was frankly, me of little faith, I was shocked. You know, 22 people who just came to pray an hour before the gathering. Maybe that's where it begins for you, uh, asking God to give you a greater dependence on him, coming a little early. Again, I'm just trying to throw out simple things that we can do to partner with God for the good of the Sunset Corridor. Where does it begin? It begins with following Jesus. He calls his 12 to himself and says, I've got stuff for you. So tonight... Uh, growing in mercy, compassion, that's good. But you know what? Until you have faith in Jesus, until you start to follow him, none of that's going to make sense. Uh, it's tonight, God wants us to grow in, in dependence and trust on him until you take the first step to say, Jesus, I am full of rebellion. I'm full of wickedness and sin and the stuff I've done. God, you know it, but I'm ashamed of it. Until you confess that to him and say, Jesus, I want, I want your forgiveness. I want your freedom. I need you to do in me what I cannot do for myself. That's where it begins. 
and growing in generosity, God is not looking for us to be nicer American people. He's actually looking to transform the way we think and feel and act and live. And out of the overflow of our relationship with him, we live differently. Not, not just religious people that look good on the outside to impress, but people who have actually been changed from within and want to live the Jesus-like life. It starts when we trust him. So tonight, uh, it's about you falling in love with Jesus. It's about you responding to Jesus. Tonight, where are you with Jesus? Are you following him? Like, really, for real? I mean, not just going to church and reading some Bible, doing some religious stuff. Are you actively following him? Tonight, we want to invite you to life. We want to invite you to see Jesus as the bread of life. We want want you to see Jesus for who he is, the Savior of the world. And tonight, you can follow him with your whole heart. We want to invite you to do that.